Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, striking the right balance on the new Polaris contract. You and I know that things in the government contracting space don't move that quickly. <laughs> so this, this vehicle gives the tools to make kind of incremental adjustments. The IRS's customer experience challenge is its technology. Some of their legacy systems are over 60 years old uh, for IT. I get very nervous when I see an IT system that's about as old as I am. You know, that's not a good thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we all want a long life, but not for technology. And putting your team to the test for security's sake. We do send phishing emails out to employees, and we tower those phishing messages based on the employee's jobs to make it a little bit more difficult for them to, to, to understand or see immediately that it's just an exercise. It's Friday, March 11th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Pentagon's chief data officer is stepping down. David Spurk tells FedScoop today is his last day at the Department of Defense. Spurk hasn't said what he'll do next or when. A, quote, full wave of 5G capabilities coming at the Pentagon. The technical director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency, Neil Ziering, says security, interoperability, and deployability requirements are still a work in progress. Ziering says the services are, quote, rushing headlong into 5G. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Decision makers from the Navy, the Jake Office at DOD, the State Department, and more agencies are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It'll be at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City on April 19th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The General Services Administration says it will release the first two requests for proposal on the new Polaris contract, quote, soon. But it's not saying when soon is. Julie Dunn is president of Dunn Strategic Solutions. She's former commissioner of the Federal Acquisition Service, GSA. Julie, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The deadline was February. That slid soon as who knows when. What happens behind the scenes that somebody on the outside might not see that causes a vehicle like this to slide? Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, well, Polaris is sort of near and dear to my heart. It's one of the things that uh, the former administrator and I worked really hard to get that initial draft RFP out the door. Um, I, I think, you know, you got to step back and look at the big picture. I think 2022 is still going to be the year of, of Polaris. Um, but stepping back, I think you have to think about the other small business GWACs that are in play. Um, and I think the first year of any administration, there's it, there's a transition, you know, and, there, and there's kind of getting used to things and, and figuring out what needs to get out the door. Um, so I think one of the big things I, I was thinking about in terms of, you know, why it potentially didn't get out in February is because they were also making the award for 8A Stars 3 or the second cohort of that. Um, so that's something to think about. And I think, you know, GSA has to manage those staff resources um, and, and I think we're, we're seeing that um, there was some commentary late last year where they were talking about how, how they're going to stagger some of the, the RFPs for these different pools. So I think that those are things to think about, you know, the transition, managing um, staff. And, and I think um, also th there is such a huge amount of interest in this vehicle, rightly so. I mean, there's a lot of pent up demand. And I think the industry has been pretty active in terms of giving feedback to GSA. Um, and I think GSA has been very receptive to that. So, 
you know, I know that um, I think there was an industry day back in October last year, and there were almost 2,000 participants, you know, and so they're having, GSA is having to deal with all those comments. Um, I'm sure they've got to like put them in buckets and figuring out, figure out how to prioritize those things. So there's a lot going on. What makes Polaris so desirable for the companies to get on it? What benefit will it deliver to the agencies that they don't have access to now or they don't have access to as much of now or whatever, Julie? Sure. Um, so I think for the agencies, um, it, it does provide a vehicle that's kind of ready to go in terms of meeting some of their small business goals. Um, and I think this administration has uh, have, has a lot of policy initiative to try and meet some of their uh, diversity, equity, inclusion goals. Um, there was a memo back in December uh, saying that, you know, if you award uh, to smalls, that will also count towards category management goals. And I know, you know, depending on the agency, some of the bigs like, you know, Department of Defense, they've got a lot of opportunity to meet some of those goals. But some of the smaller ones might have challenges. So meeting some of those policy goals makes this vehicle extremely attractive. Um, I think some of the things for industry in terms of what makes it attractive, um, there, there are things like, uh, you know, one of the priorities when we first put that draft RFP out there is we wanted to use some of the tools that Congress gave us. For example, the 876 authority. So, you know, you're competing um, price at the task order level as opposed to the IDIQ level, which is you know, that's, that's, that takes off a lot of burden for, for small business. So hopefully there'll be a lot of opportunity for small business to kind of get in there. And, um, and, and I think another big thing that makes this attractive is GSA recognizes they need to change and respond to some of the agency demands. And there's like a, a technology refresh clause in there saying, hey, let's think about, you know, we don't know in 2022 what technology we might need 10 years from now. And, you know, this has a five-year base period with a potential five-year option period. So I think that's really looking ahead. Is that the biggest challenge to running a vehicle like this, Julie, that the term has to be long to make it appealing, I guess, to the companies to want to get on it, uh, mm -hmm. you know, do the work that's necessary to, to try to get on it, but that by the time it expires or by the time we even get a year or two into it, the, the things that agencies will want will be completely different than they are today. That that can be a challenge, right? But I think that's something that um, with Polaris, things we were thinking about in terms of the technology refresh clause, as well as potentially being able to on-ramp uh, additional companies. So I think GSA recognized in terms of, and, and that was sort of one of the benefits when we were able to reset from the prior initiative with you know, Alliant to Small Business. So this was a way to reset figure out how we can use the tools we have and make this a flexible vehicle. Because um, GSA, I mean, having been on the inside as the commissioner, I know we took a lot of time to talk to agencies and figure out, you know, what are we missing? Um, what would make this easier for you to use this vehicle? I understand the value of a flexible vehicle, Julie, but is there a, is there a place where it becomes too flexible, where there's too much potential movement of companies on and off, where there's too much potential of uh, technology on and off that it becomes either unwieldy or just unworkable or just not really that uh, user-friendly for the agencies? Um, I suppose that's possible, uh, but you and I know that things in the government contracting space don't move 
that quickly. <laughs> so this, this vehicle gives the tools to make kind of incremental adjustments. You know, I don't think we're going to be adding, you know, name your technology from 10 years from now every second day. But, you know, I, I think when uh, Alliant to Small Business came out, we weren't necessarily thinking about edge computing or quantum computing and, you know, all the potential um, applications for AI and automation and that kind of thing. More broadly, what would you like to see GSA do to be able to keep some of these vehicles on track? Or is it less important to keep them on track than it is to make sure that when they come out, they're really bulletproof, they're really ready to go, especially given what we've seen other places across the contracting landscape in the last year or so? Um, I mean, it is a challenge. And, you know, one of the things that we did, and I'm sure they're still doing this, is uh, when you have an important vehicle like that, making sure there's a lot of leadership attention um, to kind of meet deadlines. And But of course, things come up um, and there's a lot of juggling in terms of resources. And as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the acquisition workforce at, at GSA is extraordinary, but, you know, we can only ask so much of them. And like I said, we had uh, the 8A Stars 3 award, the first one back in the summer, and then we had the most recent one in February. So, you know, I think there were some adjustments that were made. And, and frankly, GSA was also accommodating to industry. Um, you know, when we were, when G, I still say we every once in a while, <laughs> but when, when GSA asked for input back in December, you know, do you want this before the holidays or after GSA listened and said, okay, well, we'll hold off. You'll be forgiven for your personal investment in GSA for the time that you spent there, Julie. Thanks very much for coming on today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You can read more about the Polaris contract in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. You have about a week left to get your domination in for the best bosses in federal IT. You can recognize the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders across the federal government. The list of finalists debuts March 28th. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Internal Revenue Service is opening a taxpayer experience office. The agency says the office will focus on, quote, all aspects of taxpayer transactions. Chris Mim is adjunct professor of public administration at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. He's former managing director for strategic issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What jumps out at you as the, as the IRS says they're going to open and make very robust, beef up a taxpayer experience office? Welcome. Well, thank you, Francis. And as always, it's great to be back with you. It's uh, um, a couple of things. And I, and I think it kind of if there's a bottom line statement on this is that this is an, an important and, and good step. The, the key to success, of course, like everything else, all large change management initiatives will be an effective implementation and actually follow through. So what's actually important on this is that it's carrying through with the commitments that IRS made in its report to Congress as part of the Taxpayer First Act and as part of its taxpayer um, experience strategy. Those were large and kind of broad visioning documents on where they wanted to go with the customer experience. This is actually an, uh, an implementation mechanism that's designed to bring together a series of initiatives and hopefully power them through to implementation, which again, that's going to be the key to success. Okay. What are the keys to that success, Chris? You did that for a long time at GAO, helped people understand the keys to success of implementation of government programs and legislative mandates. What do they need to do here from the very beginning to make sure this works the way that it's envisioned? 
Yeah, there's a, a number of things they need to do. And it's and just as a, a quick backdrop on this is, as you know, the customer service and customer experience is a longstanding problem with the, with the IRS. I mean, colleagues, former colleagues of mine at the Government Accountability Office were doing reports in the late 1990s that were focusing on the importance of, of a customer experience or at that point, just customer service and really IRS following through on that. So there are a couple of things that I think that they really need to do to, to make sure that they're successful on this. First is that they need to maintain the consistency of the focus and really power through to implementation. They've had a big office in the past on this. And back in the 1990s, they had something called the, the TSI, the uh, Taxpayer uh, Service and Treatment Improvement Office that was, again, at the level of the commissioner. Um, it does some nice things, and then there's a tendency in government to declare victory and kind of move on when attention wanes or, or other issues emerge, emerge. They really need, these are, are long-term problems, and the strategies and fixes that they're looking to put in place are long-term in nature, in some cases going over many years. They need to make sure that they follow through consistently. Second is that they need to make sure that there's active priority setting that takes place. There's a, at least 100 different initiatives dealing with taxpayer experience at IRS. Um, all of them presumably are important, but they all can't be tackled at exactly the same time or with the same level of energy. On top of this, obviously, IRS has had experiences in recent years with staff cuts and budget cuts and, uh, and their major responsibilities on implementation of the CARES Act, the tax provisions of the, the CARES Act. They have an awful lot on their plate, so they're going to have to be setting priorities, and that's what this high-level group can do and can be effective on. The third one is that they need to make sure that they have effective project management. In J January of 2020, my former colleagues at the GAO issued a report on taxpayer service that was talking about the, the problem with performance measurement and really that they needed to get goals and tangible and quantitative performance measurement associated in place. They had seven recommendations on that. Two of them were priority recommendations, meaning among the most important GAO recommendations to the IRS, um, those are still open. Um, and so they need to, you know, IRS really needs to do the basic project management of milestones and accountability and who's going to do what by when and then following up to make sure that's going to be done. And then fourth and in Finally, I would put out there is just again, as you well know, with IRS, it's it's technology with them. But, you know, they have a you know some of their legacy systems are over 60 years old uh, for IT. I get very nervous when I see an IT system that's about as old as I am. You know, that's not a good thing. You know, I mean, we all want a long life, but not for technology. Um, and so what they what they really need to do is their 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 CAD system on the you know that deals with IR, with uh, tax processing um, really needs to be now effectively implemented. Uh, you know, across the board. They They've had fits and starts on that with some successes, but some some real setbacks. Where else does this need to live or where else does this culture need to uh, to permeate, Chris? And I'll, the reason that I ask is you mentioned the TSI initiative lived at the commissioner level. Um, I've spoken personally over the years to Commissioner Koskinen, Commissioner Werfel, and have heard comments from Commissioner Reddig and just about every other IRS commissioner. They're committed to improving the customer experience. They understand the perception the agency has among the average citizen. And yet here we are again in 2022 where they're making this commitment again. It seems to me that the commissioner level commitment is not the problem, that the, commi the, the commitment level to customer experience is further down in the organization. 
No, that's exactly right. It needs it in all of these change management initiatives, whether it be IRS or elsewhere, it needs to really permeate across the and within the entire organization. And so it begins with frontline employees as to what's the attitude, the training, the perspective that you bring when you're dealing with a, someone that's calling up or a piece of correspondence that you have. It deals with it. It moves on to the programmatic and operational level within the organization and then ultimately up to the very top leadership on that. And indeed, that's where when we see a performance management breakdown, with that it often occurs. You can there there will be good measures in organizations at kind of the, the front line, the, the street level, or or good uh performance measures and goals at, a, at an operational or programmatic level, or even at the strategic and the top level. It's aligning all of those and showing the relationships between and among them that's that's often the breakdown. And so one way to make sure that this cascades is make sure that you have alignment from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top of the goals and how performance will be measured. Let's um, maybe think about some context for a moment, because I think we have a tendency in government, and especially people like me that cover the government from the outside, to think sometimes, boy, it's just really, it, it, stuff's terrible. Not the IRS in particular, but stuff's terrible. Um, my personal, this is only personal experience, completely anecdotal, but I have an online account with the Internal Revenue Service. I can log in fairly easily. The process is smooth. It's not the most beautiful interface compared to some things I see in the private sector, but it's completely 100% functional. That's at least progress, right? Because we weren't there with the Internal Revenue Service not such a short time ago technologically. Absolutely. No, and, and credit to them. They, they have made some progress and, and, and that's a good foundation upon which they can build. And that's, you know, it's both, so it's both good in its own right and creates an opportunity for them to expand it and, and deepen that. I mean, as you mentioned, they've, uh, they've expanded some of the uh, um, online information that's available that uh, if you, you know, for where's my refund, that's much easier to get information on that now. They've expanded the automatic callback uh, uh, features that are available. The website is now more user friendly. They're looking to put um, as other agencies across government, their their documents and their you know their guidance in plain English, you know that that people can understand and not need a tax attorney in order to to go through it with them. Um, these are all achievements, and, and it, it is to to um, to their credit. They one of the things they've also done is that in the past, when they've seen real problems with uh, uh, with call-ins, that is, people on hold uh, too long or getting what the IRS calls a courtesy disconnect, which is when you're on too long, they just hang up on you, is that they've moved more staff onto that. Um, that's to their credit. Obviously, that's not sustainable over time, you know, with the, uh, you know, absent uh, increasing uh, funding levels in FTEs uh, because they're moving staff from somewhere else, but they are seeking to be responsive. And again, that's a, a good indication behind the, the formation of this new office. It just now needs to make sure that we have the effective implementation. All right. Uh, final thought, Chris, how does one measure success in a customer experience office generically or in this one in particular? I think there's a, a couple of ways, and fortunately, there's models out there for this. Is that you know the um, consistent with the the guidance that's in A11 on the OMB circular A11 on the uh, customer experience. Certainly, what's been in the president's executive order on on um, on uh, A11. I mean, on, on the customer experience um, in the, the uh, president's management agenda vision um, on the customer experience. I think there's you know there's certainly you know guidance that's out there on how we think about the customer experience and not just measuring customer satisfaction 
satisfaction. That's an important element on it, but actually their journey, as they often put it, through the organization and at the various touch points that are involved. Specifically in terms of organization, I think the way you measure that is the extent to which that it is able to demonstrate that it is working with its colleagues that uh, within IRS and partner organizations, which is a key strategy that IRS has uh, for the customer experience, um, to prioritize, to make sure the resources are in place, to, to, uh, uh, to focus on the top priorities, to make sure that the implementation is actually taking place, just like they ought to be doing project management for the customer experience, you bring a project management approach to this office as well and ask questions about how do we know that we're being effective in, in, in providing the guidance, the leadership, and the resources that are needed. Chris Mim, great to talk to you as always. Excellent insight. Thanks for joining me today. My great pleasure, Francis. Take care. You can read more about the IRS's Taxpayer Experience Office in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. IT leaders from CISA and HHS headline the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference. It's May 19th at the International Spy Museum downtown D.C. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Secure Software Development Framework from the National Institute of Standards and Technology is the gold standard now for software development in government. NIST wrote that framework because of a mandate in President Biden's cyber executive order. Chris Chilbert is Chief Information Officer at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He tells my FedScoop colleague Wyatt Cash, even though his agencies knew it was already working on some of the mandates in the EO. The security breaches at uh, Office of Personnel Management several years ago and then just last year with SolarWinds had really highlighted why we need to do implement or implement zero trust principles. And, and, and so that's why we had started down that route already. But there was a long journey. So, so putting, putting these, uh, the, what the, what the uh, cybersecurity executive order did um, was not only help us prioritize uh, it also helped drive a conversation among other government agencies and with government agencies. We, we like to share information with our partners. So we were able to get great insights from uh, different organizations that were in different uh, stages of their journey and then share best practices and lessons learned from our own organization. Uh, the, the other great thing that the executive order did was it helped spur the creation of some additional guidance coming out of organizations such as uh, the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity, Infrastructure Security Agency, where they have things such as the uh, Zero Trust Maturity Model. So we are using that maturity model to help uh, evaluate ourselves. Um, but bottom line is we're a relatively new agency, so we don't have quite the level of uh, legacy infrastructure as some agencies do, but we're always looking for ways to improve, and that uh, executive order really helped us uh, put us on that path. Appreciate that. Uh, next, let me ask, how is the government's willingness to allow employees to work remotely, um, uh, how's that altered your approach to things like identity and multi-factor authentic, uh, authentication? Well, even prior to the pandemic, a really large portion of the CBP workforce of over 2,000 employees and contractors was either fully remote or constantly traveling to perform the mission. So we had some of the infrastructure in place that helped ease that transition to maximum telework for the employees. However, what the pandemic did is it put a lot of pressure on our ability to support personal identity verification cards as a means of authentication remotely, since employees either could not travel to get into offices or the credentialing facilities themselves were closed. 
And so since multi-factor authentication is a really crucial part of our defense in depth that uh, approach to cybersecurity, what we had to do was work to implement an alternative means of multi-factor that uh, does not require employees to go in the office to either enroll or update certificates. So uh, we did a few things. So for employees that already had their PIV cards, we, we implemented derived credentials, which is um, an approach that made use using the cards uh, uh, both more secure, but also improve the employee experience. Uh, for those who did not have them, um, what we did is implement an alternative means of providing multi-factor. Um, and so that, that process has been underway for the last few months. And we've basically got almost every single employee and contractor on some type of an alternative means that they can't use their PIV cards. So what we're looking forward to in the future is you know, additional possibilities that you know, the, the new NIST guidance will be offering to use additional types of authenticators, um, you know, expanding the definition of what a derived PIV credential can be. And, and, and uh, so that's something that we're going to continue to implement and, and focus on over the next uh, year or so. Thank you for elaborating on that. Next, I'm curious, uh, we're hearing a lot about human-centric cybersecurity measures, and I'm curious, you know, how is your agency sort of moving to adapt that, for instance, by helping equip employees to deal with the growing threat of ransomware and phishing attacks? Yeah, phishing attacks are one of the, the most pernicious things that we have to be on the lookout for. Cybersecurity is really built around people doing the right things in a consistent way. And so we, we spend a lot of our time uh, educating our workforce and training our workforce to make good decisions with respect to cybersecurity. So we not only do we do annual uh, awareness training with, you know, for our employees, we, we do targeted training based on the employee's role. And we've taken some innovative approaches to uh, implementing phishing exercises on a regular basis. So you know, we, we do send phishing emails out to employees and we tailor those phishing messages based on the employee's jobs to make it a little bit more difficult for them to, to, to understand or see immediately that it's just an exercise. So based on the, the metrics around how well those are working, we may adjust or tailor the training that we are doing for either individuals or groups of individuals. Um, we've also incorporated some gamification type of approaches to the uh, phishing exercises. So employees who, uh, who are successful and, and continue to be successful in identifying phishing emails that can get designated as a cyber star and they can get um, uh, points for doing so. And we, we actually award the division that has the best score each quarter with a trophy. And so that actually has, has um, uh, created a little bit of competition among the workforce to see who can do it best. Um, as far as uh, being able to make it easy to report uh, phishing uh, emails. We've incorporated a tool right within the email client. So it's, it's just a single click. And then finally, I wanna em emphasize one other area, which I think is very important. So you know, we are constantly looking at ourselves and for ways to improve and looking where we may have weaknesses. But one of the things that's also important to do is keep a really open line of communication with our Office of Inspector General. So our Office of Inspector General, they they assess us every year and they, what, what they provide most crucially is an independent assessment. So um, they're always, they always find things uh, for us and, and they always let us know right away. So they will share their findings as they uncover them. 
uh, so we can act immediately. So I always uh, recommend to all CIOs keep that line of communication open with your IG and, and uh, rely on their services as well. Well, it certainly sounds like you're taking a lot of proactive steps over there and making it fun as well. Um, I guess lastly, I'd like to just hear, um, you know, what steps are being implemented to help your organization's employees also um, deal with and, you know, create and manage their passwords more effectively because we're not quite ready to move away from passwords uh, just yet. Uh, well, that, that, that's the goal, right? Our, our main priority is to actually eliminate passwords uh, as quickly as possible. So we, we eventually want to get to a point where every single bureau system and data set is protected by multi-factor authentication and there is no password involved. So what we're doing there for applications that do not integrate with our enterprise authentication solutions or do not directly support multi-factor authentication, we are working with our internal system owners and our vendors to implement some type of a compensating control and develop plans to eventually implement multi-factor or switch to a different technology altogether. So we keep track of the applications and all the users that are using those applications as we work through those challenges. In the cases where passwords cannot be avoided, avoided we uh, train personnel on how to create effective ones. And so that's, that's definitely integrated into the, not just the awareness training, but the, the training tied to each employee's role. So our goal with this, within this year to be able to eliminate the use of passwords altogether across all of our systems. The Chief Information Officer at CFPB, Chris Chilbert, with my FedScoop colleague, Wyatt Cash. You can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice. Thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The show returns Monday. Have a great weekend. Until Monday, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.